This is Owen Tinder Jones. I'm Owen Vaughan Williams. This is Tash Harden. And you are listening to the Owen Tinder Podcast. Hello everybody and welcome to the latest Coleman Had a Dream podcast. Uh, we're doing a bit of a special show today on racism in football, uh, not only uh, around Europe and the world but also how it affects Wales as well. Uh, I'm joined as ever with Ruth. Hello. Where are you today Ruth? I am in Silver Falls State Park in Oregon where we're doing our latest round of volunteering. That sounds absolutely lovely. Uh, and we are joined today by a friend of mine, Stuart Oladali, who is someone I went to school with, um, who is someone who's very passionate about uh, discrimination and football, and has also unfortunately been affected by some of the incidents that we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, so thanks for joining us, Stu. Hello. Um, so we are going to talk about a variety of different things. And the first instance of this kind of came up talking about what happened involving Wales and Slovakia uh, in the Euros. Obviously, Wales initially were going to be denied access to the ground and the ground was going to be full of kids who were going to get free entry. And this kind of sparked a conversation between Ruth and I and also Stuart and I on, on Twitter as well, actually, um, just about a variety of different topics. And we thought in, in, in light of so many different things happening of late, um, it's something we felt we should address. Um, so let's just start by looking at some kind of recent examples um, the, one of the most uh, famous ones, if, if that's the right word, was the incident with the Haringey goalkeeper um, against against Yeovil in the FA Cup. I assume you guys both saw that. Yeah. Um, basically, the the goalkeeper was racially abused, and in the end, the team decided to walk off. I think they identified two uh, fans in inverted commas from Yeovil. Um, how do you guys kind of feel about that event and, and obviously the, the ban, the walk off the pitch that came with it and then obviously the, the issue that went with it? Stu, I'll go with you first. Um, well, I thought, it was, I thought it was really good in a sense that it obviously brought the issue sort of to the forefront of the, of the media debate as well. The, the timing, I suppose, as well, just after the England game against Bulgaria was useful in that regard. But it, it is good that players... That player in particular, but then also his teammates and the opposition, from what I from what I read, felt empowered enough to actually walk off. Um, I, I think that is actually progress because you you know you've seen so many instances where you think players would walk off, but for whatever reason, you know, lots of players, lots of people generally don't want to actually cause a fuss even when they're racially abused, um, and that probably puts a lot of players off doing it. So it was good. It was good in that sense, but I also think. It shouldn't be down to players to take that action themselves because um, it, it opens them up to criticism. It's a big step to take um, to walk off. or to, it's, it's a big step to take to do anything when you're racially abused, but to walk off a football pitch in front of fans is, is a massive step to take. And it, it, So it was good in that it, it raised the profile of, of the issue. It was good that players felt empowered to take that sort of action. But I still think... It, we shouldn't be in a situation where we're relying on players to sort of use their own courage to take that action rather than a referee or a manager calling players off the pitch. No, I, I totally agree with you. And it's, I, you know, it puts everyone in, in an awful, awful position. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's two people who've, decided, who've kind of caused this whole issue and it's just so unnecessary and so avoidable. Um, 
Speaking of unnecessary, um, Ruth, I don't know if you remember the Millwall chan, uh, fan sorry, chanting um, in an FA Cup game, um, we'd, I'd rather be a packy than a scouse. Um, like, what, what are your thoughts on that? And what do you think would have been a kind of a, a suitable action in, in that instance? Uh, I agree with Stu in that I, th- I actually think the protocols are an improvement on the current situation in that there is at least a mechanism and a procedure. Um, I agree. I don't think it's appropriate that it's just kind of left to the players to make make a decision. Um, but I do think there's an empowerment in being able to make that decision, whether you decide to stay on the field or you decide you'd rather leave the field. Um, Millwall obviously have their own interesting history um, around this issue. And I think that that quote that you gave is, is an example where I can imagine a Millwall fan thinking they weren't actually being racist because they were having a go at Liverpudlians. But clearly the issue is wider than literally a black or white, excuse the phrasing, uh, situation. And I think where we can be guilty is allowing um, sort of tribalism in the positive sense. One of the things we enjoy about being supporters of any sport, but where tribalism doesn't, steps outside being pro your team and starts being anti the followers of another team whether or the people on the pitch for that matter so i think that something like that um rather wear a turban than be a a scouser can be kind of people can shrug their shoulders and not see it as discriminatory because of notionally who it was aimed at but by bringing race into it even in a broad sense you you turn it into a racist issue i agree with you and and i think you talked about the tribalism there and that's something i want to touch on a little bit later um but it's it's interesting that i think some clubs seem to kind of thrive uh with that sort of idea and i think that's something that we desperately need to get out of that you know this thing that Millwall's a hard place to go to and it's rough and they they love the bad atmosphere sort of thing i think is a really negative thing and i think that is something that is a big part of all of this there's one more example i just want to bring just because i want to keep it there's two more actually uh, one in in wales and one that was like a local game a couple of years ago um one of them was the FAW trophy game between Kevin Albion and STM Sports. Um, STM Sports claims that some of the Albion fans racially abused their players. Um, in the end, the, the, the claim was withdrawn because they were clear because rather than they didn't do it, just because they couldn't prove it. And I feel like this is a really important part of this as well, that if someone feels uncomfortable or someone feels they have been discriminated against, it shouldn't be for someone else who probably has limited feelings and, and knowledge on the subject to go and prove it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm, like, what, what do you think about that, Stu? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is uh, how, like, how, do, how do you prove it? There's no video evidence, you know, of these sort of this sort of level. Uh, but the mad thing about that one was that 
I don't understand how you how anybody could think a player, a black player, would go to the go to the point where they're reporting that sort of incident to a referee or to an authority if nothing had happened. Like the what the, the sort of what you're inviting on yourself by making that allegation and, and reporting that it, you just wouldn't do it. Any black person will tell you they just wouldn't do it unless it actually happened. Because I mean, the backlash that did actually happen was enough to put anybody off doing that again. Because it was you know this is a this was the FAW trophy, wasn't it? It was a semi yeah. semi final, I think. Yeah. So quite in the grand scheme of things, quite a low key affair. It was a big deal in sort of in that level of what for those players, yeah. In the grand scheme of things, quite a small thing, but it was national news, and then the FAW ended up throwing it out. So like, to go through the whole ordeal of reporting it, getting on the news, having to go through the thing, and then having it thrown out—you don't do that unless something has happened. And this, it, this was one of the big problems with the the um, when I sort of had a bit of a rant about the FAW after the. Uh, after their response to the Slovakia thing, yeah, pe- people don't engage with the the sort of the the substance, or so, or rather, they engage with the substance, however they see it, however they feel about it, rather than thinking, okay, this person who is not white f- feels something different to me about this incident. Maybe I should have a think about why that is, and that that's the sort of thing. That, that's why the whole uh, issue with the STM just went down the went down the pants because th- there's an assumption that there, well, the idea that anybody would report that without good reason. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just it seems mad to me. But obviously, if you're not black, you can't really understand the ordeal someone's putting themselves through by going by reporting it and by going through all those processes. The I mean, it was some of the reports from that game just were absolutely shocking. Like when I first read it, I couldn't believe. What's happening? Because I play at a much lower level than Welsh football. We play about three or four tiers below STM. Um, and to th- to think that that was happening, you know, you probably get a few hundred people at these games. Yeah. And to think that was, you know, that in, in, at that level where you've only got hundred or so people, you know, you can see the whites in the eyes of everybody who's watching. It's not like when you're. I'm not, I'm not condoning. I'm not sort of making this, uh, making out this is any less. But if you're a Paul Pogba playing for a hundred thousand fans. Someone up in the fourth tier making monkey chants, even though that's awful, it isn't quite the same as someone stood, you know, right around the pitch yeah. you're playing on, ten feet behind you, making those making those sorts of comments. Um, I just find it mad, and I mean, the, the worst thing, the worst thing about it all was how dismissive the FAW was about it. You know, it was just it was thrown out quietly. There was no kind of um, sort of there wasn't even any of those kind of formulaic words. That you should say about these incidents, it was just it was just thrown out, and, and that was that. Yeah, I mean, it's very disappointing uh, the way it was all handled. Um, and as you were saying there, the like the, the example you're going about Wales about how it impacts other people is less relevant unless you're the person who's been impacted. Um, exactly. and, I, and I think that gets lost in a lot of these sorts of conversations. Um, the reason I mention all of these is because it's so easy for people to say, um, you know it's disgrace what happened to England in Bulgaria and Montenegro. And have you seen the Italy fans doing this, that and the other and Spanish fans make, <coughs> making monkey chants and stuff, um, stuff like that. It, 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 I do feel that the one point that I'm really keen to make on this is that it's something that whilst it does happen in places around Europe and around the world for that matter, we also are far from immune from it here in, in 
Wales and, and, and in British football in general. Um, the, the point in case for that is I saw, as I'm sure a lot of people did, um, Lazio fans walking through Glasgow last week for the Europa Cup tie, making Nazi salutes. And it wasn't like it was one or two of them. I mean, I would say we're in the region of 100 people. Um, and the Celtic fans' response the next day was to have a banner which said, follow your leader. And it was a banner of Mussolini being hung. And it blows my mind that people think, regardless that this is anywhere near acceptable, be it in British football, European football, wherever they're playing. The crazy thing about that was the fines that went along with it. Because I had absolutely no idea how many times these clubs have been fined. Lazio, for the last three years, for discriminatory behaviour, have been fined by UEFA or their uh, national FA 17 times. How can we possibly, we are taking action on this um, and trying to make progress on this, if an incident like this keeps happening 17 times and nothing is being done about it? Like this, this is the this is the the, the sort of problem on, on Lazio. By the way, I don't know if you have you been have you been to the Olimpico in, in Rome. I have not. No. Uh, so, I mean, I'm laughing, but as you walk, you walk across a bridge to the stadium, um, and there's a big um, sort of plinth which just says Mussolini down it, and then there's and then there's a there's a kind of uh, like a park alongside the Olimpico with these old. Uh, Olympic sort of giants, which were built during Mussolini's time, and on the on the floor and on the on the sides of the bridge, there's frescoes of uh, World War One from like this is this is what obviously Mussolini used to, to 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 sort of it was the injustice he used to build up the, their movement there. Yeah. So literally, fans Lazio. I mean, this is a one-off, but Lazio fans as they walk into the ground are getting you know turned on by Mussolini as they go there. So that's that's a, probably a different issue. But my point was on on the sort of punishments is that the the, the incidents that we hear about, like the STM thing or the Bulgaria fans or the Lazio fans or whatever, they're they're the they're the symptom really of what is a massive institutional problem. Uh, in, I mean, in society, obviously, but we're talking about football, in football. And that, by that, I mean the, inst- the institution of football as well as the institutions in football. Yeah. And if you did, if, if the institutions in football themselves were, were guiding football in a proper way, you, you wouldn't, you'd certainly get fewer of those incidents. So the punishments, you're on about the punishments, the, the sort of pathetic nature of those punishments just allows the problem to grow and grow and grow. And until the institutions themselves sort that side of it out, it, the fans are going to continue doing it because the fans are the sort of the fans doing that sort of behaviour is the it's just the sort of the the ultimate result of the institutions themselves not being able to to deal with it as a problem. So that, I mean, is it was it true that the Bulgaria the fines that the Bulgarian FA got after the England game is, was less than the Nicholas Bentner fine for his? Oh, Box, is Paddy Power boxer shorts. Yeah. Is that still true? Uh, yeah, I think that is still true. I'm just going to double check that because I've got I've got that pulled up. Um, but it's it, just it, I mean it's just insane. It's, so yeah. it's, until they until they saw those sorts of things out like there, the punishments, um, 
it's going to continue. Because fans are not going to away with it. Fans aren't suffering. You know, if the Bulgarian fans do all that stuff that they do against England and the FA gets fined, it's not coming out of fans' pockets, is it? Well, that that's something that I do, I do want to get onto is is the fines and stuff like that. The I just wondered on on your thoughts, Ruth, um, on obviously how how it comes across, I guess, because the the, the initial result of that for, in the first instance for the Lazio fans was to tell people not to wear club colours so they couldn't be identifiable if there was trouble, which is completely irrelevant for the situation, um, and an alcohol curfew. Like and again, I just feel like what I don't know what how we think how they think we think they're taking this seriously. If that is their result to 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 racist behaviour, Nazi salutes, you know, Mussolini's hanging body, like it's it's insane to me. Yeah, I think there's a a, a kind of back. Obviously, there's a a much wider cultural and social issues around racism and discrimination that are then manifest at football games. Football games are not in isolation of people's cultural norms. But I think the football authorities then use that as a way to kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, there's only so much we can do. We can't, you know, we can't change people's ingrained racism or ingrained discrimination when it's a society-wide issue and I think I think this actually is one of the things I have a, a real issue with as someone who obviously hasn't experienced racism at, at games but has experienced sexism and there's this kind of um, capacity I feel for the authorities just to pretend it isn't an issue they can tackle. Just because they might be tackling one element and one venue or, you know, or an individual club or the, the particular fan base, that doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. And I, I feel that football as a, as a worldwide sport does have an incredible platform to do positive things on these kinds of issues and and that's never that's never been kind of grabbed and utilized and leveraged and unfortunately from a club level through a federation level through a, uh, a you know regional levels and all the way up to fifa you you just don't see any concern you don't see any desire to address this and I think part of that is people want to just pretend it's an external problem and, it's, and a, a problem that's almost too big to tackle at a football level when it isn't. You know, you, can, you, you tackle everything by building small bricks and then, you know, building a foundation and growing it from there. And until I think football as a, a cultural institution is prepared to start building those bricks. We're always going to keep hitting this issue of somehow it's someone else's external problem. I, I couldn't agree more. One of the things I, I, I was I was reading about when I re- was researching and, and, and looking into stuff like this today, um, 
just sticking on the on the Lazio theme, I think it was them, but um, sorry, it was the Balotelli issue uh, yesterday where he said he got racially abused, uh, monkey chants coming from the crowd, and at one point the opposition manager and president said he's making this up, this didn't happen, and there's very clear sound recordings from the game of it happening, and it, again, their dismissive nature is one thing and shows the kind of endemic problem there, but when I read further into it, UEFA's response basically was, this comes under the jurisdiction of the Italian FA. There's basically nothing we can do. And it's just like, well, if, if we're looking at how this is never going to get solved, sitting back there and going, not my problem, John, is exactly, is exactly the problem. Um, just, to, just to refer back to what you were saying there, Stu, Nicholas Bentner was fined in 2012 £80,000 equivalent of... Uh, and Bulgaria were fined £65,000. <laughs> so, good job. Um, the crazy thing about the, the Bulgaria one, um, the game was stopped twice. They already had a partial stadium enclosure uh, yeah. for that match. And then, so the next match, they've, they've done this, and to further compound it then, their punishment, yes, they were given that fine, um, do you know how, when it says a partial stadium closure, the, there are 46,000 seats at that stadium, 5,000 were blocked off. In the same stadium for the game against the Czech Republic, it was due to be 3,000 empty seats. I mean, what is the point? And then when you look at what their additional fine is now, that game that was already supposed to be blocked off against the Czech Republic is now going to be behind closed doors. But as we've seen, that will probably end up being 46,000 kids. Um, And they've got a suspended two-year ban. I mean, it's, it's insane. Yeah, they were actually given two, supposedly given two games behind closed doors, weren't they? And actually even the second of those two has been suspended. So even, you know, there's even loopholes to the loopholes, which is ridiculous. Absolutely. And like the fact that they weren't, I mean, mean, for me at this point, excluded from the competition is one thing. Um, But the fact that they're fine is so weak, just... Like you said, Stu, I, I just that that doesn't hit the fans in any way, shape, or form. They'll still be able to get tickets. I'm sure, you know, people will still be able to get in. And the thing that bugs me most about this, too, you know, the the kids and everything, just because the kids are allowed in there, that is clearly a societal problem. It, there's nothing saying that those kids who are coming in aren't racist as well. There's nothing that's saying the the one adult that has to accompany those ten people weren't one of the people doing Nazi salutes and making monkey noises, there's no restriction on it whatsoever. So it is entirely feasible that they will, A, get a full ground where I'm sure they will sell enough fizzy pop and hot dogs or whatever else to make up their £65,000 fine. And all the while, that probably those racist people who've caused this issue in the first place get into the ground anyway. And the Czech Republic fans don't have a single soul in the ground. It's absolutely, it, bl- it genuinely blows my mind. Um, that I mean, the, the only thing, I, I mean, I agree with you on how, I suppose the only thing you could say from the other side is that there'll be a stadium full or, you know, relatively full of kids who may, in, in being in a stadium full of other kids, ask the question as to, why on earth are we at a game, you know, international football game, there's only kids here. And at least somebody can tell them then what's happened and maybe they'll, you know, maybe that'll help 
educate more people about it. I mean, I suppose that would be the other side of the... Of the True, but I guess the person they're asking could well be the racist person who was doing well, the chanting, yeah. and that person says, oh, there's absolutely no reason for you for making a fuss over nothing. So I think, ultimately, it doesn't impact anyone, and I think that's something that we're keen to get onto, uh, is talk about the impacts and, and what, what needs to change. Um, I just wanted to ask... <laughs> Uh, just a couple of things because like Ruth said there you've not really experienced racism at a football stadium before um, I've only experienced it at once I went to watch Cardiff City play um, Swindon years ago and Leo Fortune West was racially abused and I was only like 18 or 19 and I was just kind of staggered really but genuinely quite scared to react um, which I appreciate now is probably a bit pathetic but it is. It shows a lot that there was a stadium full of people there, and, and no one kind of really reacted. Everyone was kind of appalled, but no one did or said anything. Um, from your perspective, Stu, I know that this is obviously a different issue for you. But what of racism have you seen at football grounds, and and anything that has happened to you personally? Well, I've, I mean, personally, playing football, I've never, I've never had anything towards me playing football. So, but I think I'm lucky in that regard that you know there were actually incidents in Welsh football. Um, I guess I'm just lucky. But similarly to you, I've been at the old Cardiff City ground at Ninian Park where uh, I went to see my first game there when I was about, it was, I must have been about eight. It was when Nathan Blake scored that winner against Man City. Oh, yeah. Um, And even then, like Blake had scored this screamer um, and people were, people were cheering. They were going, beauty and all these sorts of things. I mean, and you know, that, they weren't saying that to be racist, but when you're the black person in the crowd, that is, you know, it makes you feel uncomfortable. But then, sort of fast forward, then I was a season ticket holder at Cardiff City for, for three or four years, and there was all like it wasn't chant, it wasn't like chanting or monkey chants or anything like that. You'd always hear things in the crowd. Leo Fortune West, in particular, you know, because he was a bit of a, you know, he wasn't always elegant at players either, was he? And yeah. you would get quite a lot of stick and it would all you can have a go at a black player for being rubbish obviously he was quite rubbish sometimes but they would always there would always be some mention of the fact that he was black yeah. I remember the one game I was, I was um, Robert Earnshaw had come on and it was like his second or third uh, appearance so he must have been about 16 uh, and he came on and there was these two blokes in front of me and I'm, I can't remember what I was in my early teens I suppose these two blokes in front of me and they were just chatting about him. They said, oh, yeah, he's quick. You know, he's quick. And then one of them said, oh, he, he looks he's a bit like an alien now, isn't he? He's got a bit of a big head, obviously, Robert Earnshaw, for, for the size of his body. And the other guys went, well, he is an alien. He's black, isn't he? And it was just like, it was the sort of... It, no, he wasn't even angry about it. He wasn't being nasty. It was just this weird comment that it's just sort of so pervasive. And again, maybe it would have sounded harmless to him but being a black person stood behind him it didn't sound harmless at all yeah so i mean Cardiff ninian park was a bit of a it was a bit of a it could get really nasty at times i mean that's where i'd heard it that's where i've heard it uh in grounds i've heard it a few times in uh, once or twice um in the at the at the new Cardiff city stadium watching wales um twice now i've heard people go on when ashley williams is out in a particularly bad game which um they're increasing in, in frequency. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, I've heard twice people saying how he's not really Welsh. And I know he's not really Welsh, 
But our fat team isn't really Welsh. Yeah. And I know what they mean when they say he's not really Welsh. So I've heard these things at stadiums. And I've never, luckily, I've never been in a stadium where there's been chanting or monkey chanting things. You hear these things and you hear how they just crowd. And I mean, in a way, it almost feels a bit sort of more violating because it's just people who are just, you know, they're just having conversation with each other. And they think they can drop these things in, and it's kind of innocuous to them. But obviously, yeah, it's, they just don't. Even, they don't even know how you know what they're saying. Um, Ruth, uh, did you? You said you'd never kind of heard or experienced anything like that. Not in not in a football environment. What 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 environment? Have you um, uh, well, actually, in a in a strange way, I I, I I've experienced sort of when I was volunteering and, and working in Zimbabwe. Um, was on the receiving end of what you cons- might be considered reverse racism. As you know, as an only white woman in a uh, a tribal area, um, you know there was assumptions made about why I was there. And, and and as Stuart said, I think that the hardest things to deal with were not people being like directly in your face about things but just the the everyday conversations where clearly you were not viewed as just a a full member of society and you know for for one reason or another and just just regarded as as lesser those are actually as Stuart was saying that's actually really hard to tackle because what are you pulling people up on um, and it also can put people in a quite a defensive frame of mind because they don't feel that they've stepped out of line. You know, someone making monkey, monkey chants in a stadium knows they are doing something that yeah, they shouldn't exactly. be doing, knows that they are doing something that is abhorrent to a wider society. Someone saying something like Ash isn't really Welsh isn't, they're not seeing that in the same way and that makes it all you know that makes it harder to deal with because the person that you if, even if you start talking to people they're not responding they're not responding to your uh, you being upset because they just don't see why you're upset you know one of the things like you were talking about there Stu and, and saying to you as well Ruth is the, the things where people are saying something and they don't necessarily recognize why mm-hmm. it's racist. And like I had a conversation with, with you, Stu, a while ago, like that you, you called it like unconscious racism. Um, and the more and more you kind of take a different perspective on things, um, and I desperately don't want this to get political in any way, shape or form. Um, but for example, I find it really interesting that uh, Meghan Markle, gets absolute dog's abuse for absolutely everything she does. Good, bad, or indifferent, someone is saying something negative about her. No one has ever got anything positive to say. Um, and her her counterpart, uh, William's wife, Kate, seems to be, you know, kind of the darling of the media. And you kind of start to think about these things. And, well, what's what's the main difference that kind of stands out to you? And... And it is, in my opinion anyway, that sort of unconscious racism. People don't necessarily even know they're doing it, but it keeps happening. Um, mm-hmm. this, was, this was what, this was what uh, Raheem Sterling made that big step to, to call out, though. Mm. He, it was, you know, it's exactly the same as what, how you've just described it between, um, uh, between those two royals. 
he he raised the comparison of how the media treated him when he got his mama house compared to how uh, it was Phil Foden, wasn't it? Who who bought yeah. his? I think it was Phil Foden anyway. Yeah, it was. Who bought his mama house? And it was all like you know, sterling splashes out on lavish pad for mum or something. I've and got, then Phil Foden is the sort of you know really nice lad who's bought his mum a house with his first paycheck. And the difference the difference in how they were treated was, was like really stark in the way he presented it. But I mean, it's been with someone like Sterling, it'd been years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's always, there's always been players like it. And look at, look at managers as well and how differently the very few black managers that there have been at the, at sort of, you know, English football league level and above the difference in treatment they get compared to their white counterparts. The reasons that, you know, Chris Hewton has been sacked. Um, just don't add up when you see what other white managers get away with um, in, t- in terms of their performance. So I think it, and Darren Moore at West Brom was just the, the wildest thing. You know, he'd done such a good job and got and got sacked after a, few, a string of a few bad results. So it, I think as well as being sort of a kind of racism or unconscious racism in presentational terms, it, it goes down into affect how black people are treated in in their jobs in football as well. And bizarrely though, it doesn't that doesn't translate to the pitch. So I mean one of the really amazing things about football uh, is that you you know if you're good enough to play in a, in a, in the team you are trying to get into you will play. In, you know very rarely you're you're not going to get in a team because you're black. You wouldn't be there if that was the, if that was the case, you know. So yeah. you'll always get a, you'll always get a place in the team if you're good enough if you're black. But then it sort of stops so when you want to go into management, it seems there's a there's a there's a there's another layer of you know you have to be twice, two, three, four times as good as a, a white counterpart to get a job. And then you look at the sort of upper levels of football administration. You know the, the reasons, the things we've just talked about about the, the 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 sort of pathetic nature of the sanctions. The reason they are as they are is because there's no black people at the top of football. So you have like you know they'll they'll, they'll appoint people like Paul Elliott who helps with the FA's the kick racism. Um, show races and red card stuff. Uh, so kick it out, he does kick it out. And then Troy Townsend, you know, they appoint people to a certain level or they'll appoint black people to do certain things like tackling racism. But they will never get to that real top layer of um, of management or of administration of football. And that's, that again is, I think, it, it stems from what you just talked about, about that kind of unconscious judgment um of black of black men in football that that white people just don't get no i i totally agree and it, it kind of paints a picture of black people in, in in football in sport in general when they're kind of spoken about in this kind of derogatory sense um and i've got i've got here the thing like you were just talking about there this the the thing when raheem sterling bought him his mum a new sink for her new house and the headline in you know th- the Sun, which says a lot about it, but Sterling sinks to new low. England failure steps off planes and insults fans by showing off blinging new house. And I think there's the best part of it. Then is that then in massive bold letters, taking up like a third of the page, is just the word obscene. <laughs> it's, it's, it's bonkers, and I like, and I it sounds silly as well. But I think the use of the words that are in that sort of thing that failure and insulting fans and the word blinging is like it just yeah. it, it's just so unnecessary 
That said, my absolute favourite one is where he was mugged off by the Mail Online for taking an EasyJet flight back from holiday, <laughs> purely on the basis, why would he do that when he earns 200 grand a week? Absolutely, absolutely. And the more I'm reading through this, Mercedes, uh, Man City Ace Raseem Serling drives filthy Mercedes, and it's just a picture <laughs> of, of a dirty car. Um, <laughs> footy idiot Raheem Sterling. Footy idiot, I remember that one. Footy idiot. Um, yeah, there was one when he got breakfast. Um, Raheem Sterling treats himself to a spot of breakfast after missing out on being crowned Young Player of the Year the night before the <laughs> PFA Awards. It's insane. And um, th- this, oh, sorry, I lied. This is my favourite one. Man City star Raheem Sterling spotted bargain hunting in Pound World. <laughs> wow, good lord! I don't know. I think the bre- the breakfast is my favourite. It's nuts. I like the one about him going to Greg's shops at Primark once, uh, and then the next one after mugging him off for going on holiday on EasyJet. One of them then is Man City star Raheem Sterling hires private jet and heads on holiday. <laughs> what what do you want him to do there? Swim? Like it's it, it is it is insane. And like and I know we're trying to we, we're kind of treating it in a flippant way there, but. That is the exact sort of thing that we're talking about, where the treatment of players is is so, so different. Um, And I've got to say that um, Wilfred Zaha has done a few tweets recently as well, highlighting things that reports in the media are untrue and like the language they've used about him. I wonder why they're doing this. Um, Mm -hmm. It is very, very uh, apparent. Um, What I I will say, though, I think it's quite important to, to point out is that there does seem to be a new younger generation of football journalists who who are completely they're not just sort of they're not just stopping doing that but they're actively trying to take on that sort of that sort of stuff and i think there does it does seem to be a turning point especially with sterling himself and other players speaking out about it it does feel like there's a bit of a turning point um where you get these sort of 30 something journalists now who just think you know, like we are, this is just absolutely mad that, yeah. that he's, you know, he's having breakfast and he's being <laughs> criticised for it. Um, there was a really nice four four two issue recently where Sterling was on the front and an interview with him in, on the inside and it was just presented in a much more normal way um, and just a more balanced way. So I, I do think, although you know, there's still a lot wrong, uh, with the, the sort of media portrayal of, of black people in football, I think I do think it is changing. Um, you know, you still got idiots like Neil Custis and the Sun and oh, people, God. but I think I think there is a there is something changing. I think you know, sort of five or ten years down the line, um, things will get better again. I think. I agree, Stu. Do you see that as a manifestation of people? Let's use Sterling as an example being prepared to praise him and value him and celebrate him as a footballer, but not being able to do those things as him, as a young, successful black man. That I think certainly that was previously the case. It probably still is to an extent as well. And you wouldn't get that with someone like Phil Foden. You don't get that with a Phil Foden, do you? People do talk about how you know humble his background is and all those sorts of things, and how nice it was he bought his mum a house and those sorts of things. So there is definitely there's appeared to be there's appeared to be a block with Sterling and other players, other black players, about 
yeah, separating their how good they are playing football with how good they might be as as people as well. But it's not even it's not even considered that they might be nice people or interesting mm-hmm. people, you know. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Just and when you can, uh, you know, if you were a I don't know, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen year old teenager seeing someone that successful being treated in that way, it must make it incredibly hard to then kind of dream and aspire forward. Um, and also, if you think what you were saying a moment ago, Stuart, about, um, you know, the number of the, the, the very small number of managers and coaches and executives and that, and that sort of thing in, involved in the game. Um, I mean, why would you w- want to put yourself in such an exposed position as well? And, and then, then that unfortunately becomes a, a kind of perpetual wheel, doesn't it? That if, yeah. if, if people um, can see that being, you know, by being, um, by being adventurous with their, their career development and, and pushing into an area where the numbers are few at the moment, you put yourself in such a spotlight. And I can understand then why, why people are hesitant and then that just perpetuates. Yeah. I mean, two things. The first thing about, you know, how a kid would look at that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the truth is that a kid wouldn't realise that until about 2021 because, the, again, this is the beauty of football is that you will make it as a footballer if you're good enough on the mm-hmm. whole. Yeah. If your attitude is good enough, you, you, you know, it is, it is quite a meritocracy in that sense. Um, and a, a good football, you know, a coach or a scout genuinely does not care um, about the colour of your skin because they want to raise good footballers and, you know, they want to, you know, there's a financial incentive to developing good footballers as well and all that sort of thing. So I don't think a kid of 14 would look at Raheem Sterling and think, oh, you know, look at the treatment he gets and I can't make it. I think, though, they would you know, be given a, a sort of drive from a football to do the, you know, and in a sense that if you do your best, you'll achieve. And then they'll, you know, they'll reach 18, 19 and realise that that's absolute bullshit in, in the rest of, in the rest of life, you know. Um, so, so I don't, I don't think that is an issue at that age, but I think it probably, you know, it probably then affects kids later on then. Um, and I was going to say something about your second point, but I just, Oh, <laughs> well, I'm re- really glad you got you on here, Stu. Thanks for your help, mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know what it was. It was, about man- it was about managers. And I did have a point. So I, had, I was at an event recently, and um, Troy Townsend, Paul Elliott, Paul Parker, and Marcus Gale were on a, a panel with Darren Lewis from The Mirror, who's a really amazing journalist at The Mirror, um, sports football journalist. Um, and they were, it was about racism in football. And um, I went and had a chat to them all afterwards, and just you know, we were talk, talking about various things, but they were saying that they just wouldn't even bother starting. You know, as you we were just saying, they wouldn't even bother get, um, doing the badges and, and thinking about a career in management because they know that you know they would they would have to work three four times as hard as their white counterparts and getting a job in the first place would just be unlikely. So you know they have to go through all that um, all that work of getting their badges, which is a lot of work if you want to be an elite. Uh, football manager um, and they, they know at the end of it they're probably not going to get a job and you know these were guys just, these are like legends in English football terms you know Paul Elliott uh, Paul Parker is a Premier League winner and they're just saying there's no point there's absolutely no point trying 
Um, I, I would just want to... Like, you're absolutely right, Stu. Sorry, just, what, just quickly there was... The Sol Campbell incident was recently. He's just taken over... Is it Southend? I think he's just taken over. Yeah. And they lost their first game uh, 7-1. Um, and he was in the stands. Like, he hadn't done any training with them um, or anything like that. And, like, like shocking start for footy flop Campbell. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I, I, like, it, it, it's nuts. It's just like people who just don't read the situation, uh, have no genuine knowledge of what's going on, and then trying to make a story out of it. It's you, like you said, you can see why people think, "What's the point?" Um, just to just to move the the, the things on, because I, I don't want this to, you know, I don't want to just sound like we're kind of moaning. Um, we we've looked a little bit, and Ruth has done some great research on different things, which we'll go into now. But um, just about what clubs and countries and other stuff have done um are to react to racism we've talked about some of the ridiculous fines i've got just two little examples that i wanted to share quickly uh, before ruth does uh, shows us her brilliant research um huddersfield got fined for their shirt sponsor uh stunt where they had paddy power kind of like a sash going mm. across it and um, they were charged fifty thousand pounds for that um Millwall's fine for racist chanting, which we discussed earlier, was £10,000. What made that worse is that in their statement following that, Millwall said they, quote, fundamentally disagreed with several elements which have formed the sanction. Um, Like you can see in the videos, there's like literally hundreds of people chanting that chant. Um, It's insane. This, the next one, is one of the strangest ones. Um, And I appreciate it's a little lower level. But in November, uh, October, sorry, 2018, Congleton Town were playing Padium, I, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, the game was called off after the Congleton fans uh, abused, racially abused the opposition. Congleton were fined £160 for the abuse. <laughs> the opposition players walked off the pitch in protest and as a consequence were fined £165. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. And like... It's so obvious that the fines... I've got some thoughts on that we'll come to later, but the, the fines thing doesn't work. But I'm just intrigued, Ruth, you've done some great research on what different FAs uh, and uh, beyond that, some like government stats about, about racism in football. Yeah, I mean, the, the concerning thing, uh, looking at this research, was, I mean, obviously, racist incidents at games are going up. Um, the Home Office report for last season says that incidents have risen 47%. Um, and they think racist chanting is reported about one in every 200 games. Um, but what ha- hasn't been tracked as well and what um, I think is, is, um, is being missed really in terms of how this is going is what's happening online. Um, The most recent data I could find is actually four years old. And in that particular English Premier League season, there were reported discriminatory posts um, online at a rate of over 500 a day relating just to what was happening in the Premier League that that year. insane. It's insane. And what is interesting, although the FA is working with organisations like Kick It Out regarding what is happening 
in Stadia. They're not doing any work together on what's happening online. <clears throat> I found that astounding when it's such a pervasive part of people's lives these days that it goes back to what we were saying earlier, really, wasn't it? That this sort of isolationism of, oh, we, we can do X, we can shut this stand, or we can find this team, or we can ban this player, um, without actually kind of contextualizing what's going on and just the shrugging of the shoulders from different organizations. It's, it's just frightening. Um, I had to look at some detailed reports, both put together, two of the best actually was one put together by FIFA and one put together by the EU. What was so striking was that in FIFA's good practice guide on diversity and anti-discrimination is what it was called, and it's a 94-page document. And the, as someone looking at it from our lens, what was staggering was that within that 94 pages, there was one page given over to involvement of spectators. And even that amounted to um, tell fans that you're going to do something. For example, there was a, a quote would be, tell fans if you are going to run a campaign. There was nothing even in that document about listening to fans and involving fans and engaging fans. And I think this again goes back to a point Stuart was making about the hierarchy of these organizations that it was such a kind of ivory tower approach and really quite patronizing in the sense of, you know, we know best, we know that the right thing to do is impose a ban or a fine. Um, and no actual thought given over to what systemically might be causing, for example, Bulgaria to be fined three times in one year, you know, um, and, ha and, and no, no kind of contextual dynamic to what they're doing. The EU report, on the other hand, that I was reading, which was from the Agency for Fundamental Rights, their report is called tackling racism and discrimination in sport. Um, and interestingly, they put, they'd specifically pulled out a subsection on football and done some investigative work on football in particular. And if you were running a small youth team and wanted some ideas of how you could improve anti-discrimination in, in your club, in your league, I thought it was a brilliant report. But two of them in particular, two of their recommendations in particular, their case studies stood out to me. One was from Germany and one was from Denmark. And I'll explain the Danish one first because it's so simple. Um, they, it, it was based in Copenhagen and they have had quite a rise in an immigrant population in Copenhagen. And they were looking for ways to try and integrate the children of these families, particularly into um, sporting opportunities that the, that the city has to offer. And it, the simple solution was that they found local volunteers, part the, part, 
partnered them with a child. So if I was volunteering, I would be partnered probably with an immigrant child. And my responsibility basically was to help that child and that family find relevant sporting opportunities that matched that kid's desires and and dreams within what Copenhagen had to offer. Obviously, that then builds an integration for that family. The child is meeting local Danish children, as well as probably some kids from their their own kind of cultural background as well. The municipalities and local NGOs supported, but really it was just about putting a a well-intentioned, well-informed local adult who had some understanding of the sporting opportunities locally in touch with a newly arrived immigrant family and helping that family find the best opportunities for their children. And they'd had a really good success rate of integrating what had previously been quite kind of local Danish leagues integrating in some of the the new arrivals. And I thought that was just such a simple idea. Um, I don't know what you two think of that one. I find that fascinating. And um, it's a really, obviously, it's a great idea, a great initiative. And I think it's something that is obviously very important in certain areas. Uh, reminds me of a story uh, about uh, like a high school football team in uh, Maine. And I say football, like proper football. Um, uh, and they had um, quite a, like a, a diverse community. A lot of uh, people from all over the world come in there. And they kind of, and football was their kind of big integration. Um, and it helped kind of make a more make an old town in Maine. I wish I could remember the name of the town now, but kind of much more dynamic. It was kind of like a fledgling old industrial town which had kind of run out of money. And this uh new arrival of immigrants had basically in, in in the end kind of transformed this town kind of financially and their football team representing the high school in this town kind of was a big driving factor behind that. So it mm-hmm. goes to show that the, these kind of things, it's not kind of tokenistic in terms of just improving a football team and kind of developing, uh, you know, letting kids have a kick about. Um, it, it goes to show there really are real life examples where sport is genuinely having a, having a positive effect on integration and also uh, not just for that child and those people themselves, but also into the wider community and having a positive effect on businesses around them because mm-hmm. these people felt comfortable um, and they wanted to kind of put their own stamp on the community and, and, and these sort of things. And it just goes to show what positive impact these sort of initiatives can have. Yeah, agreed. I think it goes back to something we were discussing earlier about one of the frustrations I feel about the situation football is in currently is as the world's the world's sport, it could be doing so much more. It could be making such could be such a driver for change if only people would would tackle it and embrace that. No, I I, I totally agree. Um, just. To, to, whilst we're talking about these things, mm-hmm. um, Stu, are there any any sort of ideas or um, principles that you've seen of or you've heard of or, or things that you would like to see um, in terms of Im- improving uh, anti-racism in football? I mean, to be honest, at the level that you just talked about, when you get to real grassroots level, there'll be... There, I mean, I, I can't say any off the top of my head, but there will be plenty of things in, in Wales and in, in Britain 
where you can find these little stories of amazing things that people have done. Because at that level, you have really dedicated coaches who are volunteers who just want to, um, you know, give kids something to do and help kids play football just because they, they love football and, you know, they're normally really good community people um, and, and they just want to, you know, they just want to help <coughs> help kids get involved in the game. And they know that the benefits, you know, the social benefits, physical benefits, health benefits that football can provide and they want to do that for kids. So I think you'll find loads of those little sort of gems uh, across Britain. And the, the issue, I suppose, is that they're never... They never really uh, sort of transformed into big regional or national plans, um, so you never get the sort of level of investment that you need to to really upscale these sorts of things that you'll see. Um, I mean, that's the sort of that's the sort of sad bit about it. Clubs, though, clubs do, professional clubs do do some really good work as well, um, and it's not it's not tokenistic. Funny enough, I was um, I played in a game for. Uh, in a show races in the red cards charity game against some uh, ex-pros and Ken Mon- we played at Stamford Bridge and Ken Moncow and Jason Lee did a, a talk afterwards about uh, stuff they were doing at um, show races in the red cards but also that Chelsea was doing and Chelsea's obviously one of those clubs that has a bad reputation when it comes to racism because of the behaviour of their fans but Ken Moncow in particular was saying that the club itself is the best example of how they get into the communities around London um, and they, they try and do their educational work uh, about about racism and all sorts of other stuff, public health things as well, he was saying, alongside the football side of things. And that, that you know, it, the sort of kids are learning about those sorts of things alongside playing football. So the clubs themselves do do a lot of work. I know Charlton are really talked up as one of the good clubs to do those sorts of things too. So, I mean, it's not to be, it's not to be sniffed at. I think obviously a lot more could be done and given the you know given the amount of money these clubs make, they could surely do more. Um, but what they do do is good, and I think it's, it's, you know it never really, it doesn't really get talked about much. But I think it is probably worth just noting that there is some really good stuff going on. Um, no, I, I agree. Oh, sorry, with Gom. I wanted to chip in with uh, one of the other examples, which was like on a scale was so different from the from the Danish example and kind of segues with Stuart's point about what some of the clubs are doing. Um, the example that struck me most was, it's called Fan Project Coordination Centres. It's a German-based um, initiative. And now they have 61 um, clubs across the upper tiers of German football that have these coordination centres. And what it is for one... I'm simplifying, but basically it's a kind of social work centre attached to the fan base of each club. And some of them will have, you know, actual clubhouses and um, cultural centres. And it, it works basically by providing social work support to fans. So if a, if a, if a fan has had a, I don't know, has been banned for some games for, 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 let's say, alcohol, for argument's sake, and wants to appeal that, then this, these coordination centres would provide the support for that. Um, they put on, you know, trips for away games um, and basically build a kind of cultural centre for the fans, aimed predominantly at, you know, late teenagers, but it's, it's available for everybody. Um, and then 
once you've got those people kind of trusting you, once you, you, the fans feel that this is a place um, where uh, they're valued, then the social workers and, the, and the, the cultural activities and the volunteering that they do and that sort of thing will have a sort of anti-discrimination element building into it. Um, and I do think it's a real example of how German clubs are so much better at initiatives that focus on and with fans um, across all different aspects of the of um, of football, uh, not just not just this particular example. The whole the whole kind of setup and business model and involvement of fans in in German clubs is very different. And I do think this is an, another very strong example of where you have. By engaging fans and listening to and involving fans, you make headway in a way that you won't simply by, you know, finding a federation, for example. I think I think that's a really important point. Um, and I think that is something that in, in British football, we, from what I am aware of anyway, certainly don't see enough of. And I was thinking about, you know, the, the treatment... That Yeovil received after their two players, after their two fans, sorry, racially abused the Haringey goalkeeper. Because the big thing I think is that we can't continue to have the same style of punishments and sanctions for clubs, regardless of of where they are in the circumstance of the of, of the incident that's happened. Um, for example, you know, I. I these two fans at Yeovil, I mean, I don't know if they were actually kind of Yeovil fans, they were just out for a day out, I'm not sure. Um, For me, there's a perfect opportunity in that circumstance to to utilise the power of football to to reintegrate these people back into football, but also to kind of do some good. And I think using the fans is massive. For me, like these two fans in a smaller scale, like to to ban Yeovil from the FA Cup, I'm not sure it doesn't really achieve anything. I think it, it's a solid punishment, but I don't think it achieves anything. It doesn't change the problem. I think these two fans, for example, should be banned from attending football matches full stop. Um, and the only way they're allowed to go back to football matches is if they join a community outreach program near them, like similar to the ones that you've just mentioned there, whereby they are having a positive impact on the community and discussing why racism is wrong, why racism doesn't have a place in football. And all these fines that, you know, the Premier League clubs get paid 50 grand. If you gave that 50 grand, say, to Yeovil Town and said they've got to put on a... Um, like you were talking about that that community outreach kind of setup, and they've got to do that and implement that. And the people who are going to be part of it are these guys who've been racially abusing someone. Um, I think that would have it's a much more effective way of going after someone because you're not saying this is going to cost you a fortune. Um, they're the FA or the Premier League or whoever it is are saying we're going to help you do this. We're going to take money from a club like, I don't know, let's say Newcastle, so I don't get accused of being biased. Um, but let's say they take the money off Newcastle who've been abused, uh, fined for something. Um, then that that money can go to good use, as well as hopefully Newcastle having a separate sanction in this fictional situation. But um, I think 
involving more and more fans in these situations is 100% the way forward and making it a personal incentive for them to improve and change and do something <clears throat> and have a positive impact on those around them rather than just we find the overall 10 grand and dropped them out of the FA Cup because that doesn't change anything for anyone. I do agree with you. How, like how you standardise that though, is a really difficult thing um, yeah. to work out. I do, I do think there's something in really heavy sanctions. I mean, I've, I've been, I've uh, played in a match where the match was abandoned right, because of a, a brawl and there were, there were points docked. And rightly so, right? Because 22 players started fighting with each other. I don't understand why you wouldn't dock points for for, for racism towards players from from a certain group of, from a certain club as well. I mean, I think your, your point is right that you know you can have 15 people in a crowd of uh, of, of 5,000. It doesn't mean that club is a racist club, but I think the you, I think it does have to be a bit draconian to just force this behaviour out. Because what it does then is it forces those clubs to be better uh, at dealing with dealing with things within their own ground. That, in turn, forces the fans to think about their behaviour. And in the long run, you know, you would hope you get to a point where you rotate that sort of behaviour. That said, I don't think that's... I, you're right. I mean, it's not a perfect solution, and there is no perfect solution. But I, think, I do think there's something to be said for just, you know, some draconian punishments for clubs. I think some of them, some of the more like the the worst offenders, like we I mentioned Lazio earlier, for example, and Celtic equally have, have had a lot of um, issues with UEFA over the years. Um, those sort of clubs, absolutely, and like we're talking about Bulgaria reoffending there. For me, I agree that the the draconian idea of just chucking them out of the competition and um, and docking points and stuff, I agree that does I think in the short term would solve the problem relatively quickly in that you don't want to be the person who's banning your country from participating. The flip side of that is, say you're Bulgaria or Montenegro, I think was the other one, then if we're being brutally honest here, they aren't going to get close to qualifying. Um, If you check them out of competition, it's a competition they probably weren't going to participate very well in anyway. So the the problem still exists because those racist people are still there. We just don't see them anymore because there's no football match for them to go to. Um, And I agree with you that you're right, Stu, that there needs to be something that punishes those fans and and that federation. Um, But I, I think longer term, and I think that's where I, my personal feeling on it is that UEFA, FIFA, you know, international federations, whoever, none of them are really taking a kind of long-term view on this. Everything is quite short-term and let's get a fine, let's get a punishment, let's go to the ground, blah, 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 rather than, you know, actually going to address that, uh, going to address that problem. Yeah, I think yeah. there's a lot of reaction, isn't there, without people being proactive about this. And I, I agree. I think there's, there's obviously has to be scope for a um, an overarching body, whether it's FIFA, UEFA, the Premier League, whoever, to sanction a club, a player, based on a misdemeanor, whatever that might be, you know, fielding an ineligible player, racism from the stands. Any, you've got to have, the overarching body has to have that capacity 
But I think where the overarching bodies are failing is in then looking at the big picture and taking ownership of the big picture and what can we actually do to remove these issues as opposed to just punish these issues. No, I, I think that's I think that's completely fair. Um, I think they're caught they're caught in this sort of cycle of, mm. of of firefighting. So you know they never get round to being. You're absolutely right, but they never get round to being proactive because all they're doing is firefighting, 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 and I, and they tend to do it badly as well. You know, so it just, I, it just gets nowhere. Sorry, but I'm not sure that I'm not sure there's a desire for fire prevention either, Stu. Yeah, yeah. I think something I saw on your research you sent me earlier, Ruth, was, which is absolutely true, which is everything at the moment seems to be reactionary rather than proactive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, that ties in with exactly what you're saying there about the firefighting, um, is that there's a lot of that sort of thing going on and limited progress being made. Um, and I think that is not helping the situation in any way whatsoever. Yeah. I, I think we've... Uh, We've 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 talked enough about racism for. Uh, sorry, I'm gonna definitely gonna reword that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we've talked about it for ages now, so let's let's talk about something happier. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, on, on that, on that. Sorry, sorry to put in on Peter Beardsley. This is one of the maddest stories mm. I've heard. Uh, so, so Peter Beardsley was working with kids, and he got found to be. Um, being racist towards kids he was coaching. The, the FA banned him in from football till the end of April. <laughs> from the end to the end of April. He was being racist to kids that he was meant to be um that he was meant to be helping. And in in the hearing, he his defense accused the kids of putting their heads together and constructing a story um of him being racist towards them. Uh I mean, I think the I, I think I read that the FA completely threw that idea out. Um, but the I think uh, I, I hate to say this, Dave. But I think it was the guy from Newcastle United um, said that it's possible for him to be it's possible to, for BZ was was racist, made racist comments, but isn't a racist. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. I think that was a kind of I think it was a sort of the club sign on it. But really disappointing. This was the main thing. Really disappointingly in that in that hearing. Do you know who the people who came to give um, evidence on Beardsley's behalf as a character witness is? Wasn't that like Kevin Keegan or something like that? He was one, but that one didn't surprise me. John Barnes, Les Ferdinand and Andy Cole. Brilliant. Which is just, I, it's just, it's so much to unpick in that. that it's, it's just unbelievable. I mean, these three black men who therefore have basically... You know, in, in, in making a step to defend their mate from these allegations, have just thrown that straight back in those kids' faces. I mean, luckily he got found guilty and, you know, he got banned till the end of April. But I just couldn't believe that when I'd heard uh, that those three had come forward to defend him. Absolutely the, wild. The strangest thing about that as well is, is that the whole process took, I think it was nigh on a year for them to actually kind of construct... Uh, the case against him and have this hearing and everything um, and the his response is basically i've got i've got three black friends here so i can't be racist yeah, yeah. um which yeah. just sums up the lunacy and like you said lee charnley did say um he said racist things but i don't think he's a racist 
Yeah. Like, yeah, another another proud day for Newcastle United. <laughs> um, and it is. It's, it's nuts. And I think, again, it's just another example of there's just not enough safeguards in place for kids. In football. They, they're about uh, Craig Bellamy, I know it's not racism, but the kind of bullying. There just isn't... There's this kind of attitude amongst a certain kind of... I don't know, generation, I guess, of coaches, which is if you want this, you'll do whatever I say and that's the end of it. I yeah. can do what I want. I'm I'm Peter Beardsley or whatever. And I think it's yeah. just, again, it just it keeps perpetuating itself. It keeps making itself worse. And the the half-assed way that people try and defend themselves and, and try and use the system to get out of it, basically, just, again, shows what a, a messy situation it's in. Yeah. And he'll have a job, you know, he'll have a job next year, so... The only thing I will say there is that from what I know, he only had a job because he was a bit of a Mike Ashley yes man. Um, Mm -hmm. And he was an absolutely awful coach. Now, I appreciate that that is not the most important thing given what we've just talked about. But I don't think he will. I, I hope he won't get a job because he... Is obviously a, not a very great, not a great human being, um, in that sense. But is also awful at his job. And again, but it just perpetuates again what you were saying earlier, but Stu about um, black coaches having to work three or four times harder than someone else to try and get a job. Um, and you know, you know, as you say, he may well kind of walk into a to a post somewhere and completely undeserving. Yeah. Um, so let's try and wrap up. Uh, just because I'm, I'm aware that we have uh, we've we've talked for a long time here, um, just as a, as a as a final thought, if there was one thing uh, for either of you that you think would be the biggest change that UEFA or FIFA or whoever could make, um, what do you think that would be? I, I think they've got to change their approach to fan engagement because it's it's by addressing people at a people level that you can hope to change these things at a at a root at the root um you can you can a, 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 attack the consequences by fines and bans and points deductions and things but i i, I don't think that tackles the, the core issue uh, it's people that are the core issue. And I think unless you actually start addressing things at a people level, you're not you're not going to make changes. I think it's too easy for FIFA and UEFA to come at this institutionally and not and not at the level of fans as individuals. And I don't think this issue alone, they're guilty of this in this issue alone. I think that's a systemic problem with both organisations. And what about you, Stu? I think those those two organisations plus every football governing body just needs to hire more black people at the the top levels of football. And that includes management as well. I think they need to bring in the Rooney rule that they use in the NFL. Absolutely. That's... A no-brainer. I don't really understand the objection to it. It doesn't mean black person's going to get every job. They're just going to get an interview. Uh, so that needs to happen to get more black people into management. But they just need more black people in football administration. It's as simple as that. And it's why well, it's not as simple as that. That's a ridiculous thing to say. But that is that would be a, a big start. And they need to hire them to do things that aren't just the anti-racism part of their organisation. Mm-hmm. 
they need to hire them to do the actual meat of football administration. And then it'll flow from there. Then. If you're hiring the right people, it will flow. And all the things we've talked about, about how lots of the, you know, the bad sanctions come from people just not understanding. Um, you know, it's, it's perfectly fine that a white person does not understand how it feels to be in a, a ground when you hear those things. That's absolutely fine. But you've got to then draw on the experience of those who do understand it if you're going to actually try and combat it. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, and I think, that I, I was going to say very similar, actually, I think having more black people at the, at the top end of football administration uh, and not kind of using them tokenistically as part of the use racism, uh, you know, kick racism out or, you know, or those sorts of campaigns. I think that is the one thing that's going to make a big difference because they are the people who understand what it's like. Um, and that's a lot different from someone who's, you know, paid you know hundreds of thousands of pounds a year to sit in an office somewhere and has absolutely no idea what's going on in 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 the real world of football um, and what what certain people experience so i i would agree with you entirely Stu. um well let's wrap that up there because we have been uh, we've been talking for quite a while now um thank you very much Stu, for joining us thank you for giving your time up thank you uh, and thank you very much ruth as ever thank you Stu, thank you very much. I know this is a such an important issue for all of us, but for you, as a for obvious reasons, um, this must be so very real. And so we appreciate you being so honest and frank about this. No, it's a pleasure. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. For listening, we will be doing a preview of the upcoming men's games as well as um, a chat on the upcoming upcoming women's game as well so please keep your, your eyes and ears peeled for those thank you very much for listening good night <laughs>